1: Hi there and welcome to the explaining history podcast um, today i'm going to look really at nineteenth and early twentieth century british labor history and I stress um this is an overview I can't possibly do this uh, very very um deep and varied subject justice in one sort of half hour twenty minutes to half an hour podcast, but I'm going to give you the broad brush strokes here now the reason why I'm doing this uh, is because it's going to help you to navigate um this issue. Um, an awful lot more um you know skillfully if i give you kind of a succinct overview um from 1832 to the eve of the first world war okay obviously the kind of the masterwork on this subject um the uh, kind of the, the bedrock of british labour history really is ep thompson's the making of the english working class which uh, is is well worth a read um, obviously it's a, a marxist historiography and um you know ep thompson comes at it from his own ideological positions so that doesn't discount it as a really thorough work of history and the idea of the, the kind of the formation of class in there is is very well articulated um if we were to rewind to 1815 the the aftermath of the napoleonic wars for britain isn't um entirely good you have a long a prolonged economic slump um exacerbated by uh, waves of uh, demobbed and very often um impoverished and uh, wounded soldiers um there's a, a climate of um poverty um really up till the the kind of the mid 1820s and there's a big upswing in protest at the time. Uh, much of it is partly motivated by the fact that um, traditional industries are in decline, traditional kind of craft and artisan uh, trades are in decline, and there is the, the, the rise of manufacturing. And it's at, at this period of time that you have phenomena such as Luddism, where supposedly the, the, the kind of the apocryphal Ned Ludd um, smashed machinery um, in, in a... Um, a, a cotton mill in order to um, uh, destroy the kind of the pernicious effect of manufacturing which is stealing jobs from ordinary men. There probably was no Ned Ludd but um, it spread like the, you know, the uh, 19th century equivalent of a Facebook meme with people um, across the north of England imitating uh, Ludd's uh, activities and the Luddites were um, uh, the kind of destroyers of uh, modern manufacturing technology Um, the other main incident of the the time is the the Peterloo massacre in Manchester where peaceful protesters uh, demanding better conditions for the workers and uh, more uh, better representation were mercilessly cut down by uh, mounted soldiers, so um, there are an, a, 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 is a, there is, is a climate um, in the eight, the eighteen um, from eighteen fifteen to the eighteen twenties of um, a, a fear of re- of revolution. Obviously, you've spent uh, Britain has spent twenty years fighting revolutionary wars in France, and it's very mindful that there's a. a, a um, a climate of uh, perhaps renewed revolution in the air. Um, the continent sees a, a series of um, revolutionary upheavals you know, between 1815 and 1848. There's almost consistent um, revolution on the continent and the British are uh, determined to try to insulate the British Isles from this revolutionary threat. And so the result of this is that the actual um, response towards um, workers organising themselves is normally quite draconian. One only needs to look at, in the 1830s, the case of the Tollpuddle martyrs who uh, organise a trade union in their village uh, and are transported to Australia. Not so much for organising a trade union, um, the, the legal pretext for transporting them was that they were involved in some kind of conspiracy i.e. that they had a secret supposedly an inverted commas secret meeting which was simply a meeting in one of the um, the organizers' homes um, and that this was the pretext for suggesting that they were involved in some kind of conspiracy to overthrow the state hence their deportation and the result of the Toll Puddle Martyrs deportation is a, um, um, a mass um, procession through London of 800,000 members of the, the new working class uh, to protest this. And that alone, I think, was the thing that prompted the government to um, have them brought back eventually. Because, you see, the, by 1850 1851, in point of fact, Britain hosts the great exhibition. She is the workshop of the world. Um, the the Britain has had the first industrial revolution, and she leads the way in terms of manu- uh, of um, engineering, um, uh, construction, um, things such as uh, the, the new railways, new iron ships, um, and the large infrastructure projects. Um, that we we later are synonymous with the Victorian era and um, the the result of this with uh, Britain's four main staple industries of cotton, coal, shipbuilding and iron and steel see the explosion of uh, an urban working class you have cities such as uh, Manchester and Sheffield or Cardiff where I am at the moment goes through this metamorphosis from being, in, in, in many ways, tiny hamlets um, in about 1750 to being vast industrial complexes less than a century later. The, um, uh, the Industrial Revolution sucks people from the countryside and sucks people from the peripheries of the British Isles, particularly from Ireland, right into the hearts of cities crams them into large um poorly uh, created uh, slum dwellings thrown up by factory owners um and where there is little oversight or regulation of um anything any of the staples of life such as clean air clean air acts and that kind of thing come in the 1870s um sanitation um or, or anything like that you know the uh, problems of infant mortality are uh, are present in all these situations um and in general working conditions for the this new working class are pretty abysmal uh, and so it is little wonder that a sense of class identity in sh- shared adversity develops very quickly um and by the 1850s uh, it, it's it's clear that the this new working class presents a profound challenge to the established political system of to- liberal and Tory, if we rewind again sorry about the back and forward nature of this podcast, but if we rewind back to the eighteen thirty two reform act the eighteen thirty two reform act was um, britain's attempt really to preempt uh, the possibility of revolution. Uh, the need for uh, reform was Present in uh, most of the constituencies uh, up and down the country, um, the uh, boundaries of constituencies hasn't really changed much, pretty much since the Civil War. Therefore, you found um, constituencies such as Manchester with no MPs, and then certain parts of rural Suffolk with half a dozen, where ultimately there were a, a, you know one MP for every for you know one hundred or one or, or two hundred constituents. So, the people who needed representing the most—the new urban working class—had no representation, um, and they, the, the um, desire on the, the part of um, the working class was to have some, uh, and the uh, the new middle classes who became exceedingly wealthy from the industrial revolution was to have adequate representation. Uh, obviously the uh, the landed gentry whose party the conservative party um were, uh, were adamant that they would not sacrifice any of their political power the um uh, the mp of the period was typically a gentleman who didn't draw any kind of salary but simply lived off his investments his trust fund his uh, land and would from there be able to um Dabble in the gentlemanly sport of politics, which would, of course, keep him and his classes' interests nice and secure. The upshot of eighteen thirty-two is that the middle classes, the Britain's sort of growing bourgeoisie, are the ones who are enfranchised. They're the ones that get the vote, uh, as vote has a property qualification. People with properties over a certain value may may have the franchise, and it was seen that um, that. Um, a responsible, respectable type of fellow who could um, earn enough to keep a household and to, to have a property, could be trusted with such uh, issues as, as voting. The working classes are, are go with um, continued disenfranchisement and um, it's not shortly after that, it's shortly after that, was actually the situation becomes worse for the working classes because the the new um, the the new middle classes who are now having their input into the um, uh, the system of power um, and partic- predominantly their vote goes towards the liberals um, see policies um, forwarded that really are of um, uh, profoundly or really are profoundly adverse to the working classes particularly things like the new Poor Laws and the Natchbull Act which establishes workhouses um, ideas uh, such as the, the fecklessness of the working classes and the the ideas relating to um, the working classes their idleness their debauchness and their poverty um, became far more prevalent after the 1832 Act than before them and the um the workhouses the new workhouses sought to punish this idleness and to almost criminalize it and to make life so unpleasant within the workhouse where you had to if you were going to live off the parish that you would um buck your ideas up and um do a hard day's graft when you left. Obviously, we now know in the twenty first century that the causes of poverty are entirely more complex um but this was uh, kind of um an idea that was ripe uh, that was uh, ripe for its times and put forward predominantly not by the landed gentry but by the new urban industrial bourgeoisie the real the winners from the industrial revolution the uh, in eighteen thirty eight um, the uh, london working men 's association first signed. And creates um, the first people's charter and this is the beginnings of the Chartist movement of which there is uh, roughly a supposed uh, peaceful branch of Chartism uh, under the auspices of William Lovett and Francis Place and a more militant perhaps revolutionary Chartism uh, under the auspices of Fergus O'Connor about more whom later Um, the, the people's charter in uh, is submitted to parliament in 1838 1842 and 1848 and in 1842 there are actually 3.5 million signatories in each case the um the charter is rebuffed there are a, a couple of violent insurrections by the chartists uh, particularly at the westgate hotel in newport and south wales um Coming, living in South Wales, one does have a kind of a very powerful sense of the um, the contribution really that the Chartists made towards the uh, um, to towards the, the kind of the birth of of mass democracy in the start of the twentieth century. Even though the Chartists by nineteen uh, by eighteen forty eight have largely failed um, to have the People's Charter which demanded universal suffrage, elections every year, and paid MPs, among other things. Even though um, it's been rebuffed three times by Parliament, the People's Charter by 1848 had achieved some considerable things. Firstly, in 1848, across Europe, there are actually European-wide revolutions the working classes in in uh, Britain are looked upon with a great deal of fear and suspicion, and the ruling classes really throughout the rest of the nineteenth century are exceedingly mindful that they can't do exactly what they want when they want with the lower orders, and they they do have to find some way of incorporating their need for um, representation into the mainstream and the combination of the People's Charter and this sense of, of potential revolutionary anger from below uh, mean that by 1867 and 1883, the franchise has been extended really to co- cover a wide bulk of the, the kind of the artisan and respectable working class. And the, the unskilled working classes are finally... Uh...
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with quince go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365 day returns
1: um given the vote in the representation of the people act 1918 along with m- the majority of women and finally in 1928 all women all, all individuals over the age of 18 are um enfranchised so the the chartists not Succeed outright, but their legacy is exceedingly important um and really they are they are the kind of the the godfathers if you will of british mass democracy. The thing to note about eighteen forty eight um as well is that it is a period you know within as i said within the by the early eighteen fifties Britain is industrially on industrially in <laughs> in industrially on top of the world, uh, the the dominant world industrial power. So by eighteen forty eight, um, the uh, there had been a profound upswing in the economy, and the the need for perhaps militancy for militant action was seemed less pronounced in the the minds of uh, the working class who had uh, a bit of money in their pockets and uh, perhaps less financial insecurity. From the eighteen fifties uh, through to the eighteen uh, seventies, there is um a, a new mood of unionism. Um all of the um the energies that had gone into chartism uh shift towards uh unionism. There is a um you know the the people the working classes who demand a people's charter don't simply cease to exist after eighteen forty eight, they go somewhere else. And um particularly The artisan working class, by artisan I mean these are skilled workers, these are people who have, uh, who command a higher wage because their skills in things like engraving or um, uh, manufacture or uh, dyeing or uh, carpentry or what have you um, are hard to come by and thus can command a higher wage. And these were the the main constituents, the main uh, constituents of um, unions up until the mid-1870s and 1880s. Um, After the 1880s there is a a surge of unskilled labour into the unions and this has a a profoundly altering effect. Um, The the thing about the artisan working class is that they very often didn't see themselves as having an awful lot in common with their their unskilled uh, cousins who, who make up the bulk of the working class and often saw themselves as in many ways a cut above and perhaps slight, having slightly more in common with their employers and having maybe a little bit more time for their employers. Um, the Working classes um, after the 1880s, uh, the unions after the 1880s, uh, um, increase in size, largely due to the fact that Gladstone had made unionism, uh, given it fully recognised legal status in the 1870s, and thus that meant that the trade unions were less likely to face litigation from employers if they went on strike. The um, best example of new unionism as it was called was the Branton May Match Girls strike in 1888 where the uh, match girls who worked at the Branton May factory and who had uh, become were treated abominably were um, dealt all manner of um, kind of petty and ritual humiliations by the, their male um, overseers um, were well, very often fell ill because of the white phosphorus that they were working with um, and they were, and, which got into their bones and caused all sorts of deformities. Um, they went on strike for better pay and a shorter working day and eventually they went. Um, and the, these were unskilled labourers who were self-organising. Um, there was, um, a lot has been said about Annie Besant, who was one of the, kind of, the original, um, organizers of the strike, who comes from outside, is well-educated and, um, and, and, and politically aware, um, the the thing that has come to light in uh, recent historiographies of the Match Girls strike is that Annie Besant's role isn't quite what people think, uh, or quite as important as people think, because the Match Girls were actually doing things for themselves, organising themselves. So the reason why the Match Girls strike is significant is because it is a strike by uh, non-artisan labour. It's a strike by unskilled labour that's successful, and it it sets a precedent for further union action uh, in England and the numbers of strikes and strike days increases in the 1880s and 1890s as more and more uh, non-artisan, unskilled manufacturing labour decide that it is time to flex their muscles uh, and, and, and they develop the confidence to do so. So from the 1880s, really, through to the 1920s, um, there is a prolonged period of union militancy and a a big upsurge in um, union strength. Um, And throughout this period, um, in fact, actually, we're going to do another rewind. If we go back almost to the, the 1860s, the liberals and the conservatives had both in, me- in many ways from the 1860s through to the 1880s um, looked upon the emergence of working class politics um, as a, not so much as with a sense of horror but with a sense of inevitability they could see it on, on the way um, and the um, period of uh, from uh, of Gladstone's first administration in the eighteen seventies is a period of social reform um Gladstone um was motivated by his own kind of christian uh, non conformist um beliefs, believing that really that you know the working man should have some kind of fair deal from the uh, the riches of the industrial revolution but in he was also motivated by savvy political um considerations looking at um, social reform in terms uh, as as a a thing that would eventually stave off Labour politics and divert this new growing potential constituency of the working classes towards seeing the Liberals as their natural party. Um, Disraeli was profoundly anti-reform until obviously he got into power um, after Gladstone um and from then onwards in in uh, Disraeli's administration in the 1870s he saw his role again as trying to siphon off the uh, the energies of the new working classes and he wanted the to create something like a a, a working class conservatism and um, for for the working class to see the tories as their their natural patrons and what eventually happens, of course, is that um, after World War One, we see really the the rise of a Labour Party. Um, in the um, decade before the First World War, we once again, we see another period of social reform by the Liberals, particularly led by Lloyd George, um, who um, brings matters to a head with the People's Budget of 1909 where he essentially, uh, in order to get the uh, budget passed to pay for social reform, including old age pensions, uh, and to finance the building of dreadnoughts at the same time to counter the growing threat of uh, German naval rivalries, has to impose a super tax on the wealthy and eventually um, have, uh, a series of general elections to break the power of the House of Lords and their ability to to veto. That's a story for another time. One of the the, of the final things I want to talk about is um, the extre- the extent of um, Labour militancy on the eve of World War One. Um, by 1911, there was a genuine fear um, that there would be a revolution in Britain. Um, the 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 unions were explicitly uh, articulating this, but not the union leadership. Um, much of the rank and file of the trade unions looked at the union leadership with a kind of distrust and disdain. Uh, the The leaders of the the country's biggest unions um, were, in the eyes of some of the rank and file, little better than bosses themselves. They had become wealthy and gentrified, and um, were had you know comparatively cozy relations with the 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 management of uh, some of britain's major industries so the result of that was um a, a radicalism from below and it's interesting that if you skip forward to the mid to late 1970s you see um a a a, a replay of this really um, in things like the the Winter of Discontent, where the um, the union bosses um, seemed to have completely lost control of the the rank and file membership, who uh, and the shop stewards who became progressively more radical, the emergence of syndicalism before World War One was an extremely worrying trend to the union leadership and also to the government, who um, were mindful that this could possibly break out into mass civil unrest and the, the Liberal government at the time is facing a possible civil war in Ireland and the prospect even of the uh, suffragettes uh, putting uh, bombs in the mail uh, as they had started to do. I think when the, uh, the suffragettes burned down Lloyd George's house it was a bit of a clue. Um, and in a way, um, tragic though it is to say, the the... the saviour of liberal England is the uh, outbreak of war in the summer of 1914 because this vast seeming external threat to the country and its rallying call to arms does um, take the wind and take the energy out of um, much of the the, kind of the internal unrest but uh, anyway, anyway, I've gone on far too long. So um, as i said that was a, a kind of a broad overview broad brush strokes um which should help to kind of when you're looking at it in, looking at labour history in a synoptic sense give you a kind of a general picture but it do, it does impress upon um people who think about this how um fundamental labour history has been to the dynamics of um the, the creation of modern politics in in britain and also that it's really um you know we we look upon um uh, british labour politics as a, a thing of the uh, of the victorian era but really it's it's a thing that really dates back before the napoleonic wars in many ways so anyway just a couple of quick announcements before we finish up today firstly um the communist century by chris kostov is going to be ready um, to download uh, hopefully in the next month it's, it's a brilliant, uh, as we've done today, it's a, it's a brilliant synoptic overview in 35,000 words uh, on the history of communism in the 20th century from Russia to China to Cuba to Vietnam to Angola um, and, and beyond and the uh, challenge of anti-communism um, so it's well worth downloading. If you're studying um, modern British history or politics, it's an essential handbook that you can um, uh, you can keep. Chris Kostov is a superb academic who's come to work with Explaining History, and uh, it's going to be a pleasure to see this and hopefully more work from him in the future. Julia Roundridge's George Orwell biography is going to be joined with uh, another title by her in the next uh, couple of months, The, the Genocidal Century. Uh, which is going to look at everything from the Armenian genocide through to the Holocaust, through to Rwanda, and try to look at the big picture of why we've been in this century of, of genocide. My very own um, Redson at War, part three, is um, ready to download. Um, it's the third installment of Japan's War in the Pacific. And uh, if you're interested in that, then there is a great title that's coming out later in the year. William McSweeney's *The Destructive Century*, looking at the kind of the, the mass industrialisation of warfare, um, uh, mass bombing, um, and how war has gone from being um, the sport of gentlemen in about the seventeenth century to really being, you know, this profound threat to the continuance of, of humanity. So we've got loads going on. This is um, we. I'm always looking for new writers, always looking for new contributors. So if you really want to make that leap into writing, see your works published either on the site or in ebook format, drop me a line at info at explaininghistory.com um, and uh, or visit the site www.explaininghistory.com and I want as many people out there to be part of this great history conversation that we've got going on. Anyway, thanks very much. Um do remember to visit the site. We're actually one other thing, we've got a new essay on there by Tom Layton, um, all about Stalin's uh, adoption of socialism in one country. So, anyway, until next time, I've waited on for long enough. Um, have a good one. I'll speak to you soon. Bye.